0: The topic of this lecture is maternal-fetal relations. In the not-too-distant past, the topic of this lecture would be covered in a sentence or two. Pregnant women ought to care for the babies they are carrying, and society, and business as part of society, ought to have in place protections for women and the children they are carrying. But that was the past, and the now is different. The reasons why the now is different are the power of a particular form of feminism and the removal of most of the legal protections for the unborn developing human being. What I would like to do in this lecture is to show how the now got to be so different, how the perspective operative in the now influences the understanding of maternal fetal relationships in pregnancy and in the workplace. The first reason why the now is different is the rise of a certain kind of feminism. Feminism had three distinctive moments in the 20th century. The first moment was the suffragette moment. Women demonstrated for their rights as active and determining participants in the polity, first as voters and then as lawmakers. They pressed for these goals and were successful in achieving them. The suffragettes, however, were mindful of the fact that women get pregnant and men do not, and so they sought appropriate protections for women. The second moment in the feminist movement was born out of the civil rights movement of the 60s. At first, feminists voiced the rightful claim to full participation in the goods of society, to education, to work, and to appropriate compensation. Technological developments emancipated them from the physical labor of the household, and advances in conception control freed them from the uncertainty of their fertility cycles. Women claimed places in medical schools, in law schools, in business schools, and in the university. And after that, places on the faculty, in the hospital, in the firm, and in the corporation. Laudable goals, each and every one. While women physicians, attorneys, CEOs, and professors are not yet at the top of their professions in significant numbers, they are no longer considered novelties. However, In the midst of the second moment of the feminist movement, a division occurred, and two factions emerged. These factions have been designated gender equity feminism and gender equality feminism. Both continue to hold many of the important values of feminism, the rights of women to be full participants in the polity, the rights of women to education, and the rights of women essentially to be persons. The gender equity feminists acknowledge that there are real differences, though, between men and women, and these differences, differences in biology, chemistry, anatomy, and interest must be respected. Gender equity feminists recognize, too, that arbitrary barriers have been in place that have impeded the advancement of women. But they also recognize that there have been substantial gains in breaking down these artificial barriers the gender equality feminists pressed the claim that gender differences are social constructs, and they pressed for social reforms to acknowledge these oppressive constructs and political reforms to dismantle the constructs and to ensure the recognition of gender equality. For the equality feminists, the fact that women become pregnant and men do not became a particularly oppressive obstacle to the advancement of women. Pregnancy sidelined women from their rise to the top. So if men are to be free from the burden of pregnancy, women must too have that freedom. The equality feminists sought to advance the claim of a right to abortion as a fundamental right, a right necessary so that women may have absolute control over their reproductive finality and hence absolute control over their lives. Only this freedom would allow women a place on the playing field equal to the place of men. Women in the United States were accorded that fundamental right in 1973 in a set of decisions, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, that issued from the United States Supreme Court. The court had to do considerable stretching to come up with these decisions, The stretching included coming up with a right that appears nowhere in the Constitution, the right to privacy, and decreeing that the conceptus, the conceived but unborn human being, is not a person and hence has no standing in the law. The court also decreed that the state may have some interest in the conceptus as its development progressed, but that that interest was to be weighed against the health interest of the mother, that is her health as physical, mental, economic, and familial were to be preferred to its life. The characterization of women that emerges is that of women as isolated, autonomous rights-bearers who claim among their important rights the right to pregnancy, the right to abortion, if pregnancy interferes with the interests of women. As a result of the success of the agenda of the gender equality feminist, a whole new host of problems arose at the intersection of law and medicine and ethics, and even the business world as these addressed maternal-fetal relationships. Among the problems are all the issues surrounding the justification for abortion and all of the issues of women in the workplace. The skewing of maternal-fetal relations forces a convoluted solution to these problems, and the problems are most often solved at significant cost to the woman and to her child. First, let me make clear that I am an equity feminist. The advances that women have made are important advances, and feminism has been an important catalyst in opening wonderful opportunities for women. As an equity feminist, I recognize real differences between men and women, and real differences in obligations for men and women. Both men and women lead lives embedded in sets of relationships, and from these relationships come advantages and obligations. These relationships exercise limiting functions on the exercise of autonomy, and enabling functions on the exercise of limited autonomy. In the lectures on abortion, I developed and defended the position that human life begins at syngamy and that the conceptus should be accorded the same protections as any other human being. As a consequence then, I acknowledge that when a woman is pregnant, she is with child. That used to be common knowledge. She carries within her the body of a living, developing human being. With that in place, the examination of the issues follows, first abortion and then problems in the workplace. The gender equality feminist presents the justification for abortion from the elements that define her understanding of her place in the world. The gender equality feminist holds a position that because she is a rights-bearing, autonomous human being because she is equal to men in her fundamental right to be free of the burden of pregnancy, and because the conceived but not yet born human being is not an autonomous rights bearer, hence not a person with standing in the law, she is free to end her pregnancy and the life developing within her whenever the pregnancy interferes with her life, her physical health, her mental health, her economic circumstances, or her familial circumstances, or if the conceived but not yet born human being is deformed, or if the conception of the new life is a consequence of rape or incest. The gender equity feminist ought to recognize that all human life is embedded in relationships. Her right to autonomy and freedom are limited by the legitimate claims of others. She understands that our being in the world as related beings is the source of our traditions of community, of hospitality, of solidarity, of mutual respect, and of liberty as ordered. These relationships constitute the links in the web of society. And from these relationships to one another, concrete duties arrived and are defined. At the same time, human beings who anchor these relationships possess individual identity. An adequate moral theory considers both the beings who constitute the relationships and the link within the relationship. The equity feminist ought to recognize the fact that every pregnancy involves at least two human beings. So the question becomes, under what circumstances may the immature dependent being be killed at the request of the more mature and more independent being? She should present a set of answers different from her sister, the equality feminist, to the question of the permissibility of abortion. Her starting point ought to be that inasmuch as abortion takes the life of a living, developing human being, the moral rules that apply to taking human life apply here. This understanding is affirmed in the religious and ethical directives for Catholic health care institutions in direction 45 which recognizes that abortion is the direct taking of the life of a preborn human being, regardless of its stage of development, and which forbids abortion at any time in the pregnancy. So unless the life of the woman is threatened by a continuation of pregnancy, abortion is not an option for her. Now, a special case arises for consideration if the life of the pregnant woman is directly threatened by the continued existence of the preborn human being. With the advances of medical science in monitoring pregnancy and in caring for the mother and her child, the direct threat to the life of the mother is seldom the case. But when it is the case that her life is threatened, abortion is permissible under the rubric of the principle of double effect. The fact that the choice here is the choice of one life over another is acknowledged and the principle is applied. The intention of the act is the saving of her life. The death of the preborn human being is not intended, and its death, if it can be averted, must be averted. The most common medical instance of this dilemma in contemporary medicine is ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is the result of the implantation of the embryo in the fallopian tube rather than in the uterus. Its position in the fallopian tube is inappropriate for two reasons. The fallopian tube does not provide a suitable environment for its development, and the growth of the embryo in the fallopian tube poses a risk for rupture of the tube and serious medical consequences, including the possibility of death for the mother. The preborn human being, in cases where the life of the mother is at risk, however, cannot be viewed as an unjust aggressor in the strict sense. Unjust aggression requires an intention to commit an act of aggression. The pre-born human being is not capable of forming an intention. Its position in the situation of permissible abortion is to be viewed as a material aggression. That is, as a matter of fact, its continued existence poses a threat to the continued existence of the woman. The same application of the principle of double effect allows the pregnant woman to go forward with medical treatment necessary for the continuation of her life and health. Sometimes the treatment has as a second effect that of causing the death of the preborn human being. The health of the mother is the intended effect. The death of the child is the unintended and undesired effect. This understanding is affirmed in Directive 47, which states that operations, treatments, and medications which have as their direct purpose, the cure of a proportionately serious pathological condition of a pregnant woman, are permitted when they cannot be safely postponed until the child is viable, even if they result in the death of the unborn child. It may be the case, however, that the mother who is faced with a serious illness that requires treatment, which poses a threat to the life of her developing child, may forego treatment for the sake of her child. Her choice, usually made out of religious commitment, is an instance of supererogation. The choice may not be made an obligation for other women. There can be no fetus first rule in ethics or the law. Both the woman and the preborn human being have equal value as human beings and an equal right to have their lives protected. The case of fetal deformity, no matter what its etiology, and no matter what its degree, and no matter what its consequent disability, presents a particular problem to be faced by a pregnant woman. And these problems, some quite significant, have been put forth as a reason adequate to justify abortion. Of course, no one wants a child to suffer. But whether the preborn human being is perceived as a child or not depends upon the perspective of the culture. In the world as defined by the gender equality feminists, the preborn human being does not have the rights of a person, hence it is not viewed as a child. Furthermore, its continued existence, especially if it is disabled, may impede the activities of the woman. So whether it continues its existence or not is her choice. Its death, a beneficent or compassionate killing, is to be preferred to its suffering and her freedom is to be preferred to its care. If, on the other hand, the preborn human being is recognized as a dependent member of the community, a member to whom some other human beings are already related, a different set of responses should arise. The disability of the human being should be compensated for by the ability of the community into which it is born to care for it. Those who are suffering disability and whatever suffering is attendant upon the disability, more frequently than not attest to the fact that they prefer their existence, albeit limited, to their not being born. In the case of a preborn human being with disability so grave that it may never be able to attest to the goodness of its existence, its goodness may be affirmed by the impact that its life has on others, those who commit themselves to its care. And the first voice that should speak in its behalf is the voice of the woman who is related most intimately to it. The choices that human beings make affect the quality of the society whose progress or decline is fashioned by the choices that we make. In addition to those pregnancies in which the fetus is known to have a disability, there are some pregnancies in which the fetus has a condition incompatible with life. Among those conditions are anencephaly and Potter syndrome. Once the diagnosis of anencephaly or Potter syndrome has been confirmed, the significant question is, what is the appropriate care for the human beings, mother and child, in this sad, perhaps devastating, temporary situation? The two possible courses of action are to continue the pregnancy until birth or to seek a termination of the pregnancy by early induction. The former response directs attention primarily to the child and the sanctity of the child's life. The latter response directs attention primarily to the woman and her grief and the desire to continue on with her life. In response to this difficult and sad situation, Catholic healthcare institutions have provided two responses. In some institutions, intervention understood as a kind of direct abortion is forbidden. In other institutions, very close attention to Directive 45 and Directive 49 in the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Health Care allows the early induction of labor and the delivery of the child. It is argued that there is no direct intention to destroy a viable fetus, that there is a proportionate reason for the induction and that the resources of the hospital will be made available to sustain the life of the child at delivery. Now, neither of these responses is unproblematic. The first response, which forbids intervention, and which may, if the woman is seeking help in a Catholic institution, force her to seek help elsewhere, seems somehow dismissive of the woman and of her concern and of the concerns for her family. Some women report feeling abandoned by the institutional church when they needed its comfort most. The child that they so desperately loved will not be, and they wish to bring closure to the tragedy by early induction. Some women, on the other hand, find comfort in carrying the child to term. They experience consolation in the fact that they cared for this child in the only way still possible, that is in the patient keeping company with this child in its brief life until it dies. Here there is a need for there to be a more sustained conversation, and in that conversation the voices of women must be heard. Rather than being dismissed as having vested interest, they must be accorded respect as the voice of experience. The recording of this conversation is important. We shall have listened, and we may learn. The second response, induction and delivery at 20 weeks, is also problematic, even while it intends to stay within the letter of the law. There is a very real sense in which the child with anencephaly, or the child with Potter syndrome, is never viable. These children have conditions incompatible with life. They are not disabled, as is the child with Down syndrome. So an early induction with all the equipment on hand for resuscitation has the appearance of a sham. A better response might be to have all comfort care measures in place for this child who is born dying. When a woman is pregnant as a result of rape or incest, the woman is rightly the subject of compassion. She has been injured by a violent act, and the consequences do not end with the violence of the act. The injury violated her body and her person, and the person who perpetrated the injury should be punished. What she is capable of doing will depend on the society within which she lives and the perspective from which she understands her condition. If she views herself as an autonomous, rights-bearing individual, and if she views the human life as it develops within her to be possessed of no rights and if she lives in a society that offers her no support in her sad and stressful situation, then abortion is her solution. If, on the other hand, she views herself as related to this new life, despite its origin, and if she views that human life as it develops within her to be possessed of the same rights as every other human being, and if she lives in a community that offers her support in her sad and stressful situation, then she may have the opportunity to choose life. Women have strength of character sufficient to bear adversity, even such great adversity as presented in a pregnancy as a consequence of rape or incest. In addressing this difficult question of pregnancy by violation, at least two important questions arise. The first question is, what obligations might be claimed to arise? when the life of one human being is so radically dependent on another for such a limited period of time? The second question is, what limitations ought to be placed on or expected of the activities of the more powerful members of society when they find themselves in relationships that are not of their own choosing? We shall often find ourselves in situations that are not of our own choosing. The choices that we make create the kind of persons that we become and the kind of society that we constitute by our membership in that society. The issue of pregnant women in the workplace has become particularly convoluted within the contemporary horizon marked by gender equality feminism and by the legal status of abortion. In the not too distant past, there were protections for pregnant women in the workplace. It used to be considered enlightened policy, beneficent even, for businesses to put into place protections for women who were pregnant. These protections were mindful of the fact that she was in a changed condition, not disabled, but that she was carrying a developing new life within her. Now these policies have come to be considered paternalistic and in violation of the right of women to be considered equal to men. And in the past 20 years, the protection for pregnant women and their unborn children have gradually diminished. An example, just one example, may be found in the case of United Automobile Workers versus Johnson Controls. The company, Johnson Controls, produces automobile batteries and during the production of the batteries, lead and lead oxide particles are released into the air. This lead can enter into the bloodstream and remain there for a considerable time period. The levels of lead in the air and the levels of lead absorbed into the bloodstream were low enough to be considered safe for adults. However, because the level of lead in the factory was considered high enough to lead to brain and central nervous system damage to the preborn human being, Johnson controls, in an attempt to protect the developing human being and in an attempt to save itself from possible future liability put into place restrictions on women in the workplace. The company tried a variety of remedies, including the exclusion of pregnant women, the exclusion of women at risk for pregnancy, and finally the exclusion of all women from work sites where the risk of contamination was considered significant. The case wound its way through various lower courts and finally reached the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled against the protective policy of Johnson Controls. Justice Blackmun, who delivered the opinion for the court, wrote, Johnson Control's fear of prenatal injury, no matter how sincere, does not begin to show that substantially all of its fertile women are incapable of doing their jobs. It is no more appropriate for the courts than it is for individual employers to decide whether a woman's reproductive role is more important to herself and to her family than her economic role. The decision of the court was framed in the presence of the following elements. First, the claim of equality of men and women in the workplace. Second, the choice of women in the exercise of her reproductive role and the end in the exercise of her economic role. And third, the lack of standing for the fetus in the law. A better choice might have been had in a company policy that made it possible for pregnant women to have the opportunity to have a position of comparable worth within the company for the duration of her pregnancy, in a social situation which regarded real differences between men and women as well as their equalities, and in a legal situation which afforded protection to preborn human beings. The appropriate balance in maternal fetal relationships will be recovered only by the reversal of cultural bias that has been created by the failure to recognize the pre-born human being as a bearer of rights and by the assertion of women of radical equality and the fundamental right to abortion. With this reversal in place, it may be possible for companies to put into place policies which respect the equal dignity of men and women, their right to work, the economic needs of women as well as men, and the health needs of the developing human being.